When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, listeners, do you have unruly critters in your life? Dogs that won't stop eating clothing items or cats that meow all night long? Head on over to Slate.com, where this week we've called on our favorite expert pet owners to answer your trickiest pet questions. We're calling it Faux Paws, and it's got all the advice you need to tame the beloved beasts in your home. Again, the column is Faux Paws, and you can read it all week long on Slate.com. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, Bo is Afraid and Ari Aster is Unwell edition. It's Wednesday, April 19th, 2022. On today's show, Bo is Afraid. It's the new movie from Ari Aster, he of hereditary and Midsommar fame. It stars Joaquin Phoenix as a man on a journey deep into his own fearful conscience. It goes wide Friday. It's in a limited release now. And then... The new TV show, Tiny Beautiful Things, it's based on the now legendary Dear Sugar Advice column and a memoir about the creation of that column by its creator, Cheryl Strayed. It stars Katherine Hahn as a Cheryl Strayed stand-in. And finally, we discuss uh, the, quote, end of the music business, a provocative essay by Ethan Iverson in The Nation magazine. Joining me today is Sam Adams, senior editor of Slate, a writer extraordinaire and very good friend of the program. Sam, hey. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, guys. And, of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey. Uh, You good? I'm good. I'm back from England. I'm enriched, not (laughs) tanned because it rained the entire time, but I'm ready to rumble. Rested, ready, enriched, and uh, and won. Okay, let's uh, let's make a show. All right. The writer-director Ari Aster scored two huge hits off of very small budgets or relatively small budgets with the films Hereditary and then Midsommar. He's been given a much larger budget this time to explore his very, very pet themes of guilt, hereditary and Oedipal sin on and on. We'll fill it out in the segment. Bo is Afraid stars Joaquin Phoenix as an apparently deeply, deeply depressed, very troubled middle-aged man who's going home to see his mother in theory. He instead embarks on an epic journey into a lurid dreamscape that seems half real, I guess, half creation of his own tormented inner state. We will also discuss. Anyway, it is filled with violence, sexual violence, duplicity, and uh, most of all, the omnipresence, real or implied, of his mom. It also stars Patti LuPone, Nathan Lane, Amy Ryan. Let's listen to a clip. Okay, I should say we don't have a clip per se. What we have is a section of the trailer, you'll hear Joaquin Phoenix's voice. He's talking to Patty Lupone, who plays his mom. Let's listen. I'm visiting my mother tomorrow. I 
carrot. It's mom. I'm just calling to say that I'm so, so, so excited to see you tomorrow. You're my angel and I love you. Okay. I love you. Okay, bye, sweetie. I love you. Are you at the airport? I'm on my way. I just... It's not safe, is it? What do you think I should do? I'm sure you'll do the right thing, sweetheart. Dana, let me start with you. Astor made a lot of money for A24, which bankrolled his two previous films. They've given him a very large budget here, I think in excess of $35 million in what appears to be <laughs> total artistic license. You can't imagine anyone restrained this, this particular vision. He's produced A Waking Nightmare, and I, I can't imagine it's not going to divide audiences passionately. So I'm actually... Uh, like genuinely, I'm very, very eager to hear what side of that line you're on or whether you think that line is is uh, chimerical in my own learned imagination. Yeah. I mean, I'm so happy we're talking about this movie because I have a feeling we're going to have arguments about it, that people will have arguments about it. I'm very curious to see whether it does well or not. Yeah. And I have to say, just as a sort of meta statement about the state of movies, like I am glad that we're still in a world where auteurs can realize weird three-hour nightmarish visions and get big budgets to do it because the scope of that is really narrowing, right? As we're always talking about on this show, like the place for movies that are something unexpected and original, which this certainly is even for Ari Aster. It's not, to be clear, a horror movie, Mm -hmm. right? It's got some horrifying images in it, but I really didn't find it scary Some? at any point. <laughs> Some every frame has 10. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's so much in a comic mode. All right, we'll get into whether it's yes. scary or not. But I personally Fair. have to say that I was never scared, maybe slightly unsettled by some parts, but, you know, then it gets undercut by something funny. Anyway, the fact that, you know, Ari Aster has basically gone off the deep end and made a bonkers movie that a lot of people are going to hate, I think is a great thing, whether you like the movie or not. Mm -hmm. So that said, did I myself like the movie? No. I think this movie fails to accomplish whatever it sets out to accomplish. Uh, And most, like, like all three of his movies, I would say, actually, though it's a big swerve away from his previous two, which resembled each other more, I think all of them failed to stick the landing. I don't think Ari Aster can do endings at all. And mm. when you're talking about a three-hour movie like this, by ending, I mean, like, the last 40 minutes to an hour yes. of the movie um, doesn't work. This movie is an hour too long, at least. And that's not because I think every movie needs to be trim and economical. It's because on its own terms, I feel like this film sets out a bunch of interesting ideas in the first hour that often don't really get realized or, you know, the patterns are established that don't, that don't really end up delivering any right. meaning. Right. Um, or maybe too much meaning, you know? Like, I, I think you could almost argue that this movie is not subtle enough, right? I mean, it, clearly, I think one thing we could probably all agree on about this movie is that it is about psychoanalysis, right? I mean, or, or right. about sort of psychological plumbings of one's own uh, inner depths, right? And so it's some sort of... Uh, allegory, metaphor for um, self-exploration, this mm-hmm. this journey that Joaquin Phoenix's character Bo is on. And I really want to hear what you two think if Ari Aster had to, you know, lay out a proposal, if he did have some, uh, some sort of reining in by the studio and had to justify what he was doing in some sort of pitch, what would he say the movie is about? Oh, wow. Uh, Sam, your turn dying to know where, where do you come out on this? I'm glad that we're talking about it because I hope that I will have an answer to that question by the time we're done. Uh, I've seen this movie once. I'm seeing it again this evening. I still don't know how I feel about it. For me, the thing that helps put this the most in context is knowing that Bo is, is I think, the first movie that Ari Aster wrote. Um, 
before Hereditary, before anything, and he's been sort of working on it for 10 years. And it feels to me like kind of a mature expression of a fundamentally kind of juvenile impulse, you know, which is to take this over-the-top relationship, uh, anxiety, guilt-ridden relationship that this man has with his mother and just give it the most over-the-top kind of Bigfoot presentation imaginable. It plays like a script that he has been sort of writing for 10 years and just like dumping things into over and over again and probably not taking very much out. Um, So I'm deeply sort of sympathetic to its existence. There's stuff in it I like a lot. I can't say that I was like at least on first viewing moved by it. I think the thing I enjoy most about this movie so far is seeing the reports from screenings of people um, where audience members apparently just hated it and are like screaming at the screen. And I want to like go buy a ticket just so I can experience that myself. But I do think it's something that I'm going to like more as I uh, see it again, think about it, hopefully write something as well. I can't believe you're going to sit through it again. I would need to absorb it for so long before I would tolerate it. Yeah, that's like like saying like the first time I saw it, the Stockholm Syndrome didn't kick in and I didn't come to love my captor. So I'm going to volunteer for to be a a hostage a second time. I mean, you can take from my opening salvo here i hated the movie i mean i loathed that i would have screamed if i had been less socially inhibited i was surrounded by some people who were laughing and appearing to have a good time i didn't perceive this as a comedy at all um you know it's a movie about a man who's so totally broken he can't do anything but hate and distrust every piece of the universe that he inhabits there's paranoia and dread in every frame of the movie and i like sam your description of a of of a young man who spent 10 years writing and rewriting a script additively, right? Because, you know, Astor himself has said that he had Jacques Tati in mind when he was trying to fill every frame, like just semiotically overflow sort of every frame of the picture. And and what it's filled with is this man's fear and dread, right? He, nobody lives in the world that uh, Bo lives in. Um, it's a version of the real world, but it's it's distorted in a in very much a way that one's unconscious does when one's sleeping and has a nightmare. Um, you know, murder, inappropriate public sexual behavior, you know, graffiti that's wildly violent and intrusive. You know, there's a sense in which there's no physically safe space. They're constantly being invaded um, and pen- interpenetrated by the lurid world. He can't find a physical space, including his own apartment, where the nightmare doesn't seep in and invade it. It, it to me it was an enervate, a strangely um, jangling movie to watch. It was unpleasant. It was. It, it is relentlessly know, unpleasant. Relentlessly, yeah. <laughs> there is no humanism in it all whatsoever. I mean, what is the? There's no land. It's alienating to the maximum degree. There's no landing spot. I mean, Joaquin Phoenix is extraordinary in it. It's the j- Joker taken to the nth degree, right? But he's only semi-verbal. He's, um, you know, it's as with the Joker. It's a it's a very sensitive portrait by an actor going almost beyond the script to portray mental illness. Um, and and that's in, intrinsically powerful because he's such an interesting actor and mental illness is such an excruciating affliction. But it, it to my mind, um, it tells, aggressively tells no story and gives you no humanistic landing space for your own sympathies. That may be intentional. That's fine. Many things are intentional that steal my time from me and don't give it back to me at the end of my life. Um, I don't forgive them for being intentional. I think this movie is wretched, Dana, and I worry 
about what it and movies like Mother, its only real recent precedent, are going to do to the fate of the auteur when it loses 30 of the $35 million. (laughs) (laughs) Who wants to pick up that stink bomb? No, I'm not horrified by that statement at all. And I kind of suspected you would respond in that way. And I spent stretches of the movie feeling that as well. I'm not sure that I completely agree that there is no scrap of humanism, if, if I understand what you mean by that in the movie, or of, you know, of um, a vision of hopefulness. I think there are some, but then they almost immediately get undermined yeah. by the next segment. And that's what I mean about this movie needing so badly to be pruned, not because people need to sit in the theater for shorter periods of time, but because the movie's own vision of what it is to go on these this journey and what the journey means, right, and what we as journeyers into Bo's psyche are supposed to come out of the movie with just keeps getting overwritten and overwritten and overwritten by a repeated scene, as you said, of, of no place being safe. Yeah. But I think there's a, a beautiful segment toward the middle of the yes, movie that's about art. That's this moment, right, where Bo sits down in this in this um, forest theater uh, with a bunch of traveling players that he runs into on his journey and sees this kind of stage play that starts to mirror his own life. And I mean, the whole movie is obviously a hall of mirrors and you're not sure what's really happening. But if you've watched the trailer, you know, that segment where you see Joaquin Phoenix plodding through an animated landscape is what takes place during the the theater scene. And I thought that that was quite a beautiful stretch of the movie. And what I thought was happening there, you know, not that I thought everything was going to go great for Bo after that play, (laughs) but my understanding was that in some way that was about you know, how representing one's own trauma through art or through psychoanalysis or whatever it might be, that that at work of representation was in right. some way, you know, some possibility of redemption. Yeah. Uh, in ways that we won't spoil now, but we can get into in the plus segment, Ari Aster then yanks that out from under you and from Bo in, in a, you know, kind of enervating and heartbreaking way. But I don't think it's quite true that the movie doesn't have any vision of anything that isn't, you know, pure nihilism. Mm -hmm. Like, I I didn't hate it as much as Mother, you know. In fact, I didn't even have the same feeling about it. Really? The invasiveness of the world onto the space. The exaltation, Sam, of the artist. That's the thing. Yes, that gesture is very beautiful. And I loved that sequence. It was the one part of the movie I could swoon with a little bit. But it also, again, places, as Mother did, it places this very narcissistic faith in the power of the artist, which just happens to also be like, you know, in some analogous sense, the the writer-director of the film. I don't know. Are you really going back? Tell me why you're going back and what you'll be looking for. So I have to preface this by saying, first of all, that the mother fan has logged on. Um, we will have that discussion some other time. Um, but just, I, I got to admit my priors here. Um, but I feel so, like yeah, the mother I, is just silly, to be clear, rather than evil. Like, I, did, I didn't feel horrified by it. I was just more, like, angry that it stole my time. Anyway, back to you, Sam. I mean, this is a movie about, and I think this kind of, you know, Ari Aster makes these very sort of increasingly, like, assaultive movies that really depend on the kind of magnetism of their central performance to keep you involved mm, at all. Mm-hmm. And this is, I, th- I think, the most, um, if not abrasive, like sort of the least welcoming of those performances. You heard in that little clip that Joaquin Phoenix is already kind of a little like mush mouth at the beginning. And there's a part in the story where he gets um, injured and possibly drugged. And his speech is basically kind of one long slur after that. Mm-hmm. Like it's, you know, it does, it made kind of gave me the impulse to like want to turn on captions in the movie theater, which unfortunately you can't do. Um, But I think, you know, this is a movie about a guy trying to find, trying to get home, but also trying to find a place in the world. And the the three major segments of the movie, um, it starts out in the city, goes to the suburbs, then ends up during this period we were just talking about in, in the forest. 
Um, and he doesn't sort of fit in any of those places. And I, I think, I mean, the part with the sort of traveling theater troupe and the animated interlude, I, for me, that's not like a, about the power of the artist. That is sort of more about like this main character who feels very much like a kind of Ari Aster proxy um, to the extent that he's like not talking about any of the inspirations for this movie. Cause I think it's probably too close to home. Um, like art is just like a refuge for him. It's like the one place to like put all his junk um, where he can deal with it. And that is, I mean, it's a metonym for the movie. Like this is clearly just like everything being unloaded in this movie. So it is, a mess in in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I think he's clearly like a very um, analytical sort of like left brain filmmaker who just, um, you know, every shot has a purpose, who is trying to push himself further and further away from that and do something that's more intuitive um, for someone who I think maybe intuitiveness like does not come all that easily. So this feels like really an attempt to just like shove himself over the cliff and do that. And I don't think um, it all comes together, but that is like, that's just, a, that is a live and interesting thing for me to be feeling in this movie. And I, I definitely didn't come out of it like, boy, masterpiece. The reason I'm going back to see it again is not because I, I loved it, but it's, you know, sometimes you see a, a movie and you're just like, you know what? Not for me. Um, and sometimes you see it and you love it. And sometimes you like, I just have enough of a sense that I'm, I need to like, there's, there's more for me to get out of it and I might end up liking it less or more, but this is one of those for me. Like it did not fully reveal itself to me and I feel like it will be worth another two hours and 59 minutes of my time to, to try to put those pieces together. All yeah. Right. I also understand Sam that simply to write on it because it's so big and so multifarious that you need to just watch it again to see how the, the, the different acts are, are put together, you right. know, no is it w- where it veers from social satire to more like, you know, an interior journey. I mean, it's doing a lot of things at once. So to even just have an opinion on it, I kind of, I feel like it's a bit early as well. I think a viewing, a viewing where, you know, in advance what the fuck is going on um, will be helpful to me. All right. Well, I can't wait to hear your report on the second um, second viewing. The movie is Bo is Afraid. Uh, it's out in theaters now, but mostly L.A. and New York. It's going to go wide on Friday. Um, love to hear from our listeners what you think if you, if you endure it. All right, moving on. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, before we go any further, this is typically where we discuss business. Dana, what uh, what do we have? Steve, the only business is to tell listeners about today's Slate Plus segment. If you're a Slate Plus member, you will hear us talk about the entirety of Bo is Afraid, <laughs> oh, the three-hour Ari Aster movie. I had to convince Steve to do this because he said he wanted to just be over and done with it. But it's one of those movies where you can't properly discuss it without getting into some major plot twists and spoilers. And I just don't think that we can really 
properly address it unless we we do this. And I think it's going to be really fun because we're going to disagree and there's some extremely ridiculous and silly imagery that we can get into deconstructing. So if you're a Slate Plus member, you'll hear that at the end of the show. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. And when you do, you get ad-free podcasts. You get bonus contents like Steve puzzling over the contents of Patty Lupone's attic. And uh, you'll hear members-only programming on other shows like Slow Burn and the Political Gab Fest. Best of all, you will get unlimited access to all of the great writing on Slate.com. These memberships matter a lot for Slate, so please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. All right, well, Tiny Beautiful Things stars Katherine Hahn as Claire. She's a woman in mid-journey, basically, whose life is falling apart. She's nearing 50, never delivered on her early promise in the form of an unwritten book. Uh, She's now moved out of her house and continues to battle nonetheless with her husband and daughter. She's drinking to wild excess on and on. A friend approaches her with an idea. Take over my gig, the pseudonymously authored advice column known as Dear Sugar. This uh, TV show is on Hulu. It's based on a memoir of the same name by sort of semi-memoir. It's a memoir plus collection of her own Dear Sugar columns by Cheryl Strayed. Along with Han, it stars Sarah Pigeon as Claire's younger self during a period in which she lost her mother. All right, in the clip we're going to hear, you're going to hear Claire and her husband. Uh, they're in couples therapy trying to work out their issues. Claire, have you ever heard of the phrase financial infidelity? Oh, my God. It can be as destabilizing and damaging as sexual infidelity, even more so. Yeah, okay. That's not even in the same ballpark, because there's no betrayal here. I needed to take care of my brother. Yeah, when you do something wrong, it's it's different rules. This is not about rules. Not everybody comes from where you come from or, or, you know, starts life with an even playing field. I'm a black man in America. I know people don't come from an equal playing field. That's not what I mean. I'm talking about being rich. I grew up middle class. Yeah, that's rich. What do you want me to say? My brother's a fuck-up. I'm a fuck-up. Okay, I'm an awful person. I'm awful. I'm horrible. That's it. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to fucking say. Let's just start with how you're feeling. Hmm? I am feeling hungry. I am feeling tired. I'm feeling like a shell of a person, like I'm staring into an abyss. All right. We should say that actor playing her husband is Quentin Player. He's really good in this, I think. Um, Sam, let me start with you. What'd you make of the show? I liked it. Okay. I guess is where I'm at. I love Catherine Hahn. I will watch her in anything. And I did indeed watch her in this. To, like to me, she's so far and away the best thing about the show that it makes the other aspects of it a little wan by comparison. I do like, I should say, Merritt Weaver as um, kind of the the version of her mom in in the flashbacks as well. But you know, for me, especially for a story that's drawn from memoir, this it felt a little generic in a lot of ways. I felt like the sort of the obstacles that the character needed to overcome and the portrait of this. Um, you know, messy 49-year-old uh, mom struggling with trauma. Just it felt familiar in a lot of ways that undercut um, some of the real electricity going on in, in the performances. Mm. Dana, what about you? Yeah, I was just thinking in relation to what Sam just said that it's not quite that it's based on memoir, but it feels like it is, right? Because we're all familiar right, with right. Strayed as a memoirist and, you know, and with her her memoir, Wild, that was made into the movie with Reese Witherspoon. So in a strange way, this is almost like, it feels like this fan fiction, like, around Cheryl Strayed and, and Wild, right? Because once yeah. again, we get flashbacks with her mom, but now it's Merritt Weaver instead of Laura Dern, who it was in the movie. And 
Also, obviously, the story has been changed because this is a very fictionalized version of, of Cheryl's trade with some key details changed. But what it's based on is the Dear Sugar advice column that yes. Strade wrote for years. I'm not sure if she's still writing it now. Um, I, I remember I was addicted to the podcast, the Dear Sugar podcast that she did with Steve Allman, but that's definitely not not existent anymore. But the way the um, the Dear Sugar advice column, you know, which is your standard sort of agony ant advice column, is incorporated into the show is, I think, maybe the weakest point. You know, the, the, it's it's almost like the excuse for making the show is to try to turn an advice column into a fictional narrative, right? And the way that happens is that every week, or at least all the episodes I've seen so far, each episode, she gets a letter from someone that has echoes with something in her own family's life or in her past. And so then we get flashbacks with a different, you know, younger actress. Her name is Sarah Pigeon, who's really good, I think, playing the young Catherine Hahn. Um, so there's a lot going on, right? There's this person writing in, then there's that getting mapped onto her life. Then there's us going to flashbacks of different points in her previous life. And it doesn't quite feel to me like it all coheres into a whole. So, for example, Sam was pointing out Merritt Weaver as her mom is another big, strong point in the show. But she never acts with Catherine Hahn because they're in two different time frames. Right. You know, so I just kept having a feeling that, oh, I like something in this puzzle piece and I like something over here. But... I'm not quite sure that this is telling one story that I care about. Mm, I'm with both of you. I love Catherine Hahn, was very excited to see the show. I have a weird connection to the Dear Sugar column in that Steve Amon was my buddy in college. and We used to play basketball and hang out and we're close. We're really good friends. And, you know, among his many contributions to the culture, I mean, he created the Dear Sugar column. And then, you know, his pass off to Cheryl Strait has been very gracious. I mean, he says, like, I, I, she turned it into this phenomenon and took off, but, um, and that he's gracious about his claim to fame being essentially discovering Cheryl Strait. And he's depicted very fictionalized. There's no remnant of Steve's crazy personality in the character who passes the column off. Anyway, I mean, I was very inclined to like this show and was <laughs> just found myself serially disappointed by it. I mean, in this genre, right, where someone's sort of falling apart and a bit of a life mess and the and the damage they're creating, you know, the, the bystander damage, you know, um, they're creating is real. Um, you have to like who they are, but not what they do, which is resonant to an audience because you have such people in your life and you root for them and they perpetually disappoint you. This thing has no momentum, weirdly. I find... And not only that, I kind of dislike her character as written. So the initial gesture I was incapable of making, I find her, even in the clip we heard, I found myself kind of disliking this person, right? I don't, I'm not rooting for this person. I think she sounds self-centered and kind of like a mess, but an uninteresting one. And Han is doing what she can, but I don't, I don't know. I just, I feel as though the gestalt is not happening, even though, as with you, then I like all the—I really enjoy all of the performances and all the ancillary performances. I think Sarah Pigeon is terrific. I actually think the flashbacks are quite good. Though that's not hazily depicted. That moment in her life where this catastrophic loss changes her, obviously, forever. Actually, it's quite powerful. It has a integrity to itself. It's not half-imagined to me. Um, but, uh, Sam, I don't know how else to put it. I find her annoying. Yeah, well, I mean, what crystallized for me what doesn't work about this series was in the middle of it, I started to think about the other representation of actual Cheryl Strayed, uh, which is Reese Witherspoon in Wild. And what I 
not a perfect movie, but what I loved about that movie was her performance and the sort of unapologetic prickliness of it. That was a character mm-hmm. who had problems who could be, you know, quote unquote, unlikable, whatever, but absolutely like didn't apologize for it. Wasn't going around with her sort of, you know, hair on messy, be like, oh God, I'm sorry, I'm such a mess. Um, and this show like really just has Catherine Hahn in constant like apologizing for her fuck yeah. ups mode. Yeah. And and that you know and trying to work out her relationship with her daughter and her husband, um, and it, you know she just feels like this kind of ball of of chaos in a way that you know is less interesting to me than if if it were more if the show were kind of more behind that in a way like not saying like this is okay but just giving her permission to not be constantly apologizing for that that just feels like a less um, interesting and. Maybe I'm overstating it, but there there was something you know a little bit slightly radical about Reese Witherspoon's character in Wild, and I've, this character feels a little regressive by comparison. You know, I also believed, and this just may be in the script, or but maybe it's in the performance too. I believed that Reese Witherspoon's character in Wild was a writer. You know, it was if she mm-hmm. yeah. it, it was a more writerly movie. Remember, there was that whole thing of her finding little notes in in boxes oh, right. along the way on right. the trail. I really like that movie Wild, maybe just because the book it's based on is so good. Yeah. Cheryl Strays Wild is a really good book, but. It felt as if that was the sort of um, coming of age of a writer story that this wants to be and isn't. So we see a lot of the young version of the Catherine Hahn character sitting at the computer, right? And then she's an established writer by the time we get to the older Catherine Hahn. But I never quite believed it. That always just seemed like a, a, a contrivance of the script. You know what occurred to me while we're talking about it? is that this is sort of the anti-Bo is afraid. <laughs> I mean, it's a very similar story, right? It's a messed up middle-aged person who's going back to trauma involving their mother that happened when they were younger and sort of about working that out. And it, it also is the opposite of Bo is afraid in that that is so messy and sprawling and you're not sure what Ari Aster's trying to say. And I feel like Tiny Beautiful Things has the opposite problem, that mm. each episode is too pat. It literally starts out with somebody saying, please help me with this problem. And then by the end, she's helped them with the problem and helped herself with the same problem. And there's just something too tidy and like touchy-feely wellness about the way that it all gets bundled at the end of each episode, I sensed. And uh, so it, it's it's doing exactly what we wished Bo is Afraid is doing a bit more of, which is giving some conclusion to this emotional journey, but it's doing it too neatly and facilely. Yeah, I mean, this does not feel like a story that you needed four hours to tell eight half-hour episodes. Like, it, it feels like the arc is pretty clear from the beginning and could have been, you know, gone through in, in half the time. Uh, okay, the show is Tiny Beautiful Things. It's on Hulu. We're not so hot, not so cold for it. Check it out. Tell us what you thought. Let's move on. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FD Weekend wherever you listen. All right, for our third segment, we're going to discuss an essay in The Nation uh, magazine by uh, Ethan Iverson, a musician, a jazz musician, who's written about the end of the music business. Uh, The occasion, as much as anything, is how beautifully and elegantly Iverson presents A, the history of popular music in relation to recording technology, and B, the moment we're at, given streaming. Um, And let me begin with what I thought was just kind of the key turning point in this essay, which I cannot recommend highly enough. We'll link to it. He says, starting in about 1955, labels churned out 12-inch records documenting the peak of human achievement in all genres. This is the LP, the long-playing 33 and a third revolutions per minute vinyl record album. Uh, They put everything they were able to put, I'm summarizing now, they put everything on it, Beethoven symphonies, on and on, Ella Fitzgerald, concept albums by the Beatles. For modern jazz, the classic LP is the basic text and the organizing principle of the genre, the universal and internal standard by which to judge excellence. Dana, what I find very interesting about this piece is, first of all, it's just such a beautifully concise description of the relationship between technology, the constraints of technology and the art form of music and popular music in particular, you know, the album, it's funny. I mean, and and think about it in relation to our recent discussion about Boy Genius. They're unconstrained Boy Genius. They don't have to put out anything called an album. The word itself isn't an anachronism. And yet what they've produced is, I think, roughly about 10 songs recorded roughly around this in the same time period and adding up to a statement in a cohesive artistic whole. That's a legacy of a totally different technological moment. Now, hipsters like vinyl and Boy Genius are hip, and it's going to go, to use outmoded terms, but it's going to go on vinyl. So in some sense, they're making an album in the old-fashioned sense. But it raises this interesting question about the relationship between artistic creation and technology and obsolescence. What do you make of this piece? I really, really like this this piece, and I think what felt fresh and unusual about it, I mean, for one thing, having it be from the point of view of a musician and somebody who's thought a lot about music history, you know? I mean, I just, I feel like we're always, I mean, on this podcast and everywhere in the culture, we're always having discussions about, you know, the crisis of digital um, media and what's going to happen in the future. And nobody knows. I mean, at the end of this yeah. piece, essentially, Ethan Iverson gives a big shrug, like, who knows what's coming next? Uh, because we don't know. But I love that he focuses on the past, you know, in a way that informs what we're thinking about now. So he basically goes back to, you know, the beginning of wax cylinder, you know, Edison recordings and sort of talks about the development of listening technology and, and the consumer's relationship to it. In a way that, you know, I sort of knew, obviously, the wax cylinder becomes the 78, becomes the CD, becomes digital music, you know, but talking about sort of um, how consumer behavior changed along throughout that century of, of recorded music and where we're at now, something about the little potted history he gives of it just made me think about it in a different way. And in particular, you know, because this happens to coincide with my own life as a music consumer, about the advent of the CD and just what a bummer that was. I just remember that moment so clearly where it was sort of, I mean, I was not a huge music collector, you know, not somebody who had some prized, incredible collection of albums. But yeah, if I had music, it was on a big platter and and suddenly we were supposed to go 
to the same stores where we had sifted through the beautiful bins of platters where you get to open up the gatefold and read the lyrics. And we were looking at these yucky jewel boxes, right? And these these ugly pieces of metal inside them. And as he pointed out, the packaging was really wasteful to discourage people shoplifting. Remember the CDs used to come in those big, long plastic, you know, that were like twice as long as the CD itself? easily twice. And I remember the discourse around CDs at that time about, you know, exactly what he says about replacing your music. Like, oh, it's time to rebuy the exact same, exact same collection you already have for a new medium because that old medium, totally gone, never going to come back, right? And But this new medium is going to be great. And in fact, CDs are terrible. They're mm-hmm. not durable, right? The sound isn't as good. Almost all the ones I have now from the old days now have some sort of skip or problem in them. The packaging doesn't leave you the room for, for the art and the lyrics that you used to have. And they just suck. Like Oh, jewel, <laughs> and jewel cases are the worst, right? I was just thinking about those horrible clear boxes and how the lid always breaks off and you just hope that it'll break off in a way where you can still sort of like fit it back on again and cover your CD. They're just such an unappealing piece of music delivery technology. And uh, and obviously digital has replaced them and has its own really, really bad downsides. Like, as he points out, no metadata at all a lot of the time. There's no mm. way to get the lyrics and who's playing on the jazz quartet you're listening to. And you've got to go Google it. It just doesn't make any sense. So I feel like vinyl coming back is not just about let's be hip and pretend, you know, that we're back Fair. in the mid-century. Yeah. It is actually a superior medium for consuming music. Yeah. So, what, it, it, Sam, let me turn to you. I mean, it, it, there's a way in which this subject branches out in two major directions, right? There's the ways in which artists conform to technology and produce an artifact appropriate to its constraints, right? And then there's the user end of it, which is what it's like to have an infinite archive and at a, a button away and how that shifts one's own listening habits, but deeper in some sense, your whole relationship to music and your ability to listen um, meditatively and attentively is bound to change better for better or for worse juries may be out but i'm so i'm curious to hear you speak maybe to the latter part of that that two prong yeah it's interesting to me that in this you know this is an article that covers you know the you know 100 years of the music business that i mean it also tries to i think kind of cleave the music business from music itself and pointing out that you know this part where recorded music as a business is just like a kind of little blip in the history of of music and it's something that we didn't have at one point and something that uh, we might not have in the same way um in the future um Melanie's talking about the shift to streaming and he's saying, I think he says something like everybody I know listens to music, you know, from an iPhone through Apple music on AirPods. Um, but he's still uh, working with the, the iPod because he wants to sort of have like a, a physical, um, and I, I guess it's weird to talk about digital storage as being physical, but compared to streaming it is, but you know, he wants to have like something to hold on to. And what's interesting to me about the LP revival um, is, you know, part of it is that, uh, you know, people just don't like CDs, but I think it all, there is something appealing about, um, I, I don't know, I don't necessarily believe it's a superior way to listen to music, but the experience of it is so different from everything. Else. Like the, the idea that you like put something on and you have to be kind of like keeping one ear on it and like still in the room, you know, 20 odd minutes later so that you can like stop and flip over the LP that you can't just lose track of it. You have to know when you're on track five of six so you can be ready to, you know, flip from A to B. 
Um, the fact that you have this kind of tremendously cumbersome and like inconvenient object, I think, is like part of the appeal, um, consciously or not, for a lot of the people who are, are collecting these things. So I, I think that, um, and there's part of it that is maybe like a little, um, you know, when we get into like the cassette revival, um, which to me was like not a medium that died an unnatural death. It was one that we like deliberately <laughs> killed because cassettes suck. Um, they're just bad. <laughs> like bringing them back is like no, no, we did this on purpose. Um, we, we got rid of them because yeah, we didn't the like eight them. track. We don't need to have a, a nostalgic revival for them. No. Yes, they did. But I, but I do, but I, I do think it's interesting to see the whole. I mean, like my, I have a thirteen-year-old, and she. Um, you know, was into Taylor Swift and Ariana Grande and like was wanted to get some of their LPs and like has them in her room and like never, you know, hooked up the, re- the little record player that I got her and doesn't listen to them at all. But I think just likes having them as objects. And like that, that relationship is really interesting to me. And that is, I mean, that is where the music and the business like really um, go their separate ways. Like this, that LP is like not even necessarily a musical object for her. It is just a, you know, 12 inches that of how much she likes Taylor Swift. Um, but I, you know, I think that, that like has a hold of its own. No doubt. I mean, I love a piece like this for all the reasons. Um, but one is, I guess I'd never really consciously thought about it, but that it was really the 1950s. I mean, it was not before the 1950s that the long playing record became standard and replaced the 78. And so the album, right, which to me organizes entirely as someone born after 1955 and, and, but before the advent of the CD, right, the album just defines what music is to me, both jazz of that vintage, right? So Miles and Coltrane and Bill Evans and fill in the blank. Um, But also, of course, album rock, right? And as you say, Dana, it was a whole kind of ontology. It was like a way of being in the universe and as mediated by music. And it was the size of it, the fact that you were, as Sam says, fixed in one place, listening to what was meant to be a sequenced artistic whole in one sitting while disappearing meditatively into the gatefold, right? Like into the lyrics and who was on the record and what, like what information they decided, like the Rolling Stones or Bruce Springsteen or Bob Dylan or, or Miles Davis, you know, um, chose to give you that kind of absorption and rootedness obviously disappears in the age of Spotify and I say this as someone who loves Spotify. I use it unrelentingly. And I love the idea of kind of, I mean, my master playlist is now not quite 2,000 songs, but it's probably approaching 1,500. And I love being able to put that on and then being unconstrained, so to speak, and allowing it to take me its own weird places. It's big enough that it stays unfamiliar, right? It's almost like a radio station. But... um but what I do notice is that there's, and correct me if I'm long, wrong, Dana, but in the age of Borgesian infinitude, right, as bequeathed to us by the internet and digital technology, there's kind of a, a if I have it right, swipe left mentality, you know, to, to analogize to like the dating world. It's like, how do you ever settle on a mate, right? You're sort of capable of entering an infinitely replenishing and various marketplace for possible partners of any kind, right? And as a young person, I sort of wonder about, you know, there's just 
fantastic human contingency in the pre-internet age of like meeting a person kind of randomly and everyone passes the smell test at first and then all of a sudden all possible futures die at once because you've fallen in love right like and like listening to music was kind like the album was a smaller version of that right like you're hostage to the contingencies of time and finitude right and the finitude of your own self and you're going to sit there and listen to this there are going to be tracks you don't like but they're there for a reason revolution nine is there on the white album for a reason you know it represents a weird set of preoccupations and it's a break from these other kinds of music in there and it's actually a rather incredible experience to listen to that record all the way through um anyway i'm babbling but do you see my larger point, which is that I often find myself not almost able not to get to a song to the end. I'm like, yeah, 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 I got it. I got it. Swipe left. Like, what? what's next? What's new? What's more? What's else? You know? I completely get it. I mean, that's why I don't yeah. I don't often listen to music in that format. Also, just because technologically, we never set up the household in such a way that that can be listened to with decent fidelity. So it's just right. a solo experience of listening at your laptop, which is not at all the no. same as, you know, I'm going to put on a jazz record and make dinner, you know, and it sort of fills the room. That is still when I choose to put on music as opposed to letting someone else choose it for me, you know, by essentially listening to the radio or some sort of curated playlist. That's still what I choose. And I guess maybe that's just a generational choice or something. But yeah, the the album, this makes me wish that Julia was in on this discussion, because even though she's just a bit younger than us, she did not grow up listening to music as an album listener, but as a song listener. And I've always just felt like that's such a sad, it's almost like saying I don't read novels, I only read <laughs> stories and poems or something. You know, it's just there's a yeah. whole mode of musical expression that you're not getting because an album is like a book, really. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting to me not to make this all about Taylor Swift, although, you know, that's where I'm at right now. But it is interesting to me to see younger people in the artists that they choose to interact with in that album. Since there are a lot of artists who are just just singles artists, but they're, you know, Taylor Swift is doing her Eras tour now. And it's all about like this record, that record, the record after that. So, you know, it still exists as a concept, if not as a physical object. It's just not every artist we sort of choose to consume that way. All right. Well, the article is called The End of the Music Business. It's in The Nation, the April 10th issue. It's up online. It's by Ethan Iverson. And many thanks to Mr. Iverson for writing a wonderfully rich uh, piece that led to our discussion. All right. Check it out. Let's move on. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What uh, what do you got? Steve, I try, as you know, not to do place-based endorsements too often because I know not everybody can get to every place. Uh, but I think travel makes an exception, right? If you travel somewhere really special, you're allowed to endorse it. Yeah, yeah. So on my trip to England last week, I just went to the coolest museum and it was one that I know that London is stuffed with amazing museums, only two of which I got to on this trip. Uh, but most of them I had at least heard of before, and this one I never had. And it was one of those confluences of friends where several different friends who didn't know each other told us, you have to go to this place on your trip. So we realized that it was overdetermined, and we made that choice. And I'm so glad. Have either of you, Sam or Steve, ever been to the Johnstone Museum? No. In, never in heard London? Of it. Sam? No, I've, not, I've actually not been to London in, in quite a while, sadly. So, okay, the, the Johnstone Museum, Johnstone was this, uh, Sir Johnstone was this legendary architect in, in England in the Georgian period, basically, the early 19th century. So he designed the Bank of England. He designed 
oh, gosh, a bunches of early train stations, like a lot of grand monumental buildings around London. Um, people who know the history of architecture probably know his name already, but I didn't. Uh, but this place is his residence. And in addition to being this this great architect, he was this crazy collector of art and antiquities. And, you know, during the height of, of course, you know, British Empire sort of, you know, ransacking of of other cultures. So his house is like a mini British museum, but curated by someone with a with a designer's eye for putting bizarre things together. So and and in his will, um, he's this architect who died very wealthy, although he was actually the son of a bricklayer and born into a very poor family. But both because of his marriage to a wealthy woman and because of his tremendous success as an architect, he became one of the wealthiest people in Britain. In fact, one of the things in his collection is this sarcophagus, this beautifully preserved Egyptian sarcophagus that the British Museum refused to buy because it was too expensive. But John Soane <laughs> stepped in and snapped it up. And so his house is this combination of this elegant Georgian interior, right, with just these beautiful, enviable rooms that he's tricked out with these cleverly placed mirrors so that the light is, you know, they're not gloomy at all. Mm. They, they have that sort of rich architecture of the time and, and furnishing, but they don't feel heavy and gloomy because he was so great at designing little skylights and mirrors and ways to get light in. But the whole back of his house, which was his office when he was alive, is like this crazy, crazy museum that's almost like the last shot of Citizen Kane, you know, where you see the antiquities, except they're not abandoned and neglected the way Kane's were. Mm. In fact, he loved them and was constantly up to the day of his death, arranging and rearranging and putting things in different places. So when you wander through it, it's sort of like, oh, well, there's that Egyptian sarcophagus. But right next to it is, you know, a random leg from an ancient Greek statue that's just salvaged. And it's in between, you know, two feet from, you know, a medieval wooden saint statue or whatever. He just collected everything from ancient Greece up to things of the present day and and sort of Napoleonic artifacts and things like that. Arrange them nuttily. And uh, and it's just a beautiful place to go. And I actually, for people who can't make it to London and see it, there is a really good movie, a little twenty minute film that the website made. It's not free; <laughs> you have to um, to pay for the film. But going to the museum actually is free because Johnson put in his will that in perpetuity he wanted his his residence to be a place, a museum that people could go and visit for free. So if you're in London, just set aside an afternoon, wander into the Johnson Museum, and. At whatever level you experience it, whether it's sort of, you know, taking a quick gander or, you know, really digging in and getting a tour, it's incredibly worth it. That's an amazing endorsement. And I'm going to tell my London uh, people to do it or ask if they've done it. Can you spell his last name? It's S-O-A-N-E, Sir John Soane. Sir John Soane. Lovely. Wonderful. Um, Sam, what do you got? Uh, well, I have been listening uh, quite a lot to Joy Y'all, which is the new album by Jenny Lewis, formerly of Rallo Kylie, but that has not come out for a couple of months now. What it is, has done is sent me going back to her 2014 album called The Voyager, which I think is, uh, I should say, like a masterpiece, probably one of the best albums of the 21st century. Um, somewhat lauded, but not nearly lauded enough. This is the second record she made after the breakup of her band, uh, Rallo Kylie. And it, uh, sort of a Laurel Canyon vibe is actually where she was living at the time. Uh, singer songwriter record about, um, just kind of like life on the road, nearing 40, having this peripatetic lifestyle and deciding that like, you know what, she likes it. Um, it's about, you know, feeling the pressure to, you know, what, get out of whatever, settle down, get married, have kids, and then decide you don't actually want to do any of that. And she's just going to kind of stick with this thing that she has. Um, it's a 
just a really like gorgeous record. Um, I, I suspect very autobiographical in some of its details, although also cryptic in places. Um, there's a, a lot of uh, great songs on it. One of my favorites is called Slippery Slopes, which is uh, basically deciding, reckoning with being in kind of a non-monogamous relationship as both she and her partner go off around the world and deciding that's fine as long as they set up the right kinds of ground rules. A record I've been listening to for almost 10 years now and uh, just keep getting more out of it. Uh, great vibe. Very good to listen to on vinyl to go back to our earlier discussion. Um, so highly recommend y'all check it out. And it is uh, The Voyager by Jenny Lewis. Okay, I'm also going to recommend uh, endorse a record, though I'm going to get it at just a wee bit circuitously. It's not a double endorsement, I promise. It's a single endorsement. It just comes in two media. So many years ago, it was four years ago, actually, uh, YouTube tells me, um, Kings of Convenience, the Norwegian folk duo, Close Harmony folk duo, who I worship, really love their stuff, uh, were recorded singing a song, um, I think kind of backstage at a festival in Berlin with Feist, the singer Feist. And I tried desperately to track down the song because it's fabulously beautiful. I mean, I like Feist and admire Feist to no end. I loved it way more than anything else I knew by Feist. Um, And it wasn't out there. And finally, the internet began to say, it's a song by her, and it's going to be on the forthcoming record. So my first endorsement is... um, by all, she doesn't do it with Kings of Convenience on the on the album. Um, it's wonderful on the album, but I do think there is something. It is a unique moment. It's a. It's they're not p- playing for an audience. They're just fucking around with the song backstage, and they do it beautifully. It's very moving, I think. Um, and there's like ambient chatter, and it's just it's a moment, and that it was captured is, is remarkable. It did bring me to a new album. The version on the album is, is lovely uh, and expanded out in many ways. Kill off all my language The shadows got long on the walk Across the ice on the lake But in general, the album is is like the song. It's very acoustic. It's low-key. It's incredibly heartfelt. It's called Multitudes, and it's brand new. I think it's a, it's a glorious album, and it's going to rank up there with her first as her as her best record. Uh, and she's out on tour and whatever. So it's just this, and it's a very much a midlife maturity album, and um, and it's a fully realized. It once again, Sam, we're back at the record album as this sort of organizing way of making art, and people still doing it beautifully. So the album is Multitudes by Feist. And if you search YouTube, you just need to put in Feist and Kings of Convenience, and the song is mislabeled as Rewind, uh, but it's um, Red Wing. Check it out.
Sam, thanks for coming on the show. That was really fun. Yeah, thank you. Dana, as always, a real pleasure. That was a good one. Yeah, nice to be back. Uh, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the remarkable Nicholas Bertel. And I say that this week with special emphasis because I never fast forward through the Succession theme song and credits. Every single time that song lands better and differently as the show gets more sinister and weird. And I think they change what they're showing and vary it underneath, right? The visuals change, um, these home movies. Anyway, Nick Bertel is amazing. I really want to get him back on the show before Succession ends to talk about that song. That's a great idea. Yes. I really want us to follow up on that. So let's do. And uh, our production assistant is Jessica Balderrama. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Sam Adams and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Mm-hmm.